When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where your host, that's me, Erica Anderson, brings you unique and interesting conversations with Christian women working in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. See you there. Hey, Troy, we got another book to give away, don't we? Yes, we do. This is a good one. The book we are giving away is The Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs and... Uh, stay tuned to the very end, and we will tell you how you can get an opportunity to win this classic of Christian literature, and that will help you grow in your walk with God. We have a new podcast, Revived Radio. We're very excited about it. We've been working on this behind the scenes a long time. It is finally out and available. There will be a new episode every single Tuesday. These old radio sermons have been forgotten, but that is you know, to our own loss because some of the greatest preachers that ever lived are yeah. these radio preachers. I, I mean, I, I can tell you stories of listening to them when I was younger at Bible college and how they just blew my mind. I really want to bring these to you. And just like with Revive Thoughts, we're going to give you the backstory. We're going to give you a takeaway. It's a very similar to the Revive Thoughts format. It's just working those sermons from the 1920s 1950s. You can expect to hear Ravenhill. You can expect to hear Ironsides. You can expect to hear uh, Ralph Barnard. But you can also expect maybe some people you weren't expecting, like Jim Elliott and C.S. Lewis. This is going to be a bunch of people. We're really excited to bring this show to you. Yeah, and Troy, uh, I think I believe you know the new host for that show, don't you? I do know the new host. She is uh, my lovely and beautiful wife, Elise. But she did not get the job just because she knew me. She is actually. <laughs> Uh, the better speaker, and she actually is the only one out of all of us at Revive Studios who's been paid for voice work in the right. past. Yeah, so search Revived Radio in your podcast app of choice. Subscribe to that, and you'll hear a voice much prettier than ours. Uh, <laughs> give the backstories and introduce those old-time radio sermons for you. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. Separation, toil, weariness, sighing, all have fled away. The year of the redeemed will come. Their reproach is ended, and their reigning is begun. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We are hearing from Horatius Benar. He preached this sermon in Scotland sometime around or before 1867. Jill, one thing just off the bat, if you've heard the name Horatius Benar, uh, you might have known that name because a lot of the ministers that we've had on our show were once musicians or heavily involved in music. Uh, George Whitfield, John Newton, George Matheson, several others have put together hymns for their congregation to sing. It was important to them to express their love of God in poetry and song. And Horatius Benar is actually more famous as a hymn writer than he is as a preacher. Yeah, Horatius Benar, he was known by his friends as Horus, and that's how we're going to refer to him uh, throughout this episode. He was born in 1808 in Scotland. His whole family it, were ministers. He comes from a big family of ministers. Ministry is in his bloodline. If you were to add up him and all of his siblings, his family, and see all of the years that they served in ministry, you would have had 364 years of ministry between them all. So that is... A, a large That's family. That's a long time. That's a long time. His brother, 
was the famous Andrew Benar, who went to visit Palestine with Robert Michane. I don't know if you remember that name or not. We actually have a previous episode with Robert Michane. It's titled Do What You Can. It's highly recommended. Go check it out after this episode. It was a pretty good episode. In Horace's early years, he was taught by Dr. Thomas Chalmers. And this guy is another one who's considered to be a fantastic preacher. We've been doing research on him, too. Look forward to an episode coming from him in the future as well. So he's got brothers and teachers that are also, you know, well-recognized in theological circles as, as being great speakers. Horace comes from a solid Christian family, and he has great teachers, but he actually stood out from a lot of the people around him. For starters, he went from farmhouse to farmhouse, just in the backwoods, preaching evangelism to just anyone who would listen. In the 1800s, this may not seem rare, there were a lot of evangelical groups and revivals taking place, but something that was a little bit different was his philosophy on it. He said that he did not care how many people got saved. Too many, he said, just talk about the conversions and think if I can just get the men saved. But not for Horace. He wanted to preach to the glory of Christ. He thought that as long as I preached about Christ and I bring Jehovah glory, I have done my job, no matter what happens beyond that. At the time, the Free Church of Scotland was getting ready to form. He was 29 when he first got his first official church, uh, and then in 1836 he moves to this bigger church, but then in 1843 this big thing called the Disruption of 1843 occurs. The Church of Scotland at the time was run by the government, and the government decided who could be preachers, who could be in charge of the different churches, and that meant you could get assigned a really bad person to run your church and have no say over it. Horace was against this, and many others were too, so they would form this new denomination called the Free Church of Scotland that was away from the government. Uh, But when that happened, for the first time, they had to figure out how to fund themselves, train themselves. They had to start new schools. Many lost their jobs. They'd lose their home and their parish uh, because that was left inside the, the, the other original Church of Scotland. Uh, Dr. Thomas Chalmers uh, was Horace's teacher, and he was a big leader in this movement, so Horace followed with him. Yeah, and this was a good time for Scotland in, in many ways because people were getting the truth preached to them again. But for Horace, there was a lot of personal problems during this time. He lost five of his children during this time. And while we can completely understand that breaking someone, he writes during this time, quote, Spare not the stroke, do with me as you will. Let there be nothing unfinished, broken, or marred. Complete your purpose that we may become your perfect image. So you can it's still incredibly humble and so incredibly surrendered in the midst of complete tragedy and complete loss. When he was much older, as an old man, his daughter uh, became a widow, and she had five kids of her own. And so her and her five kids moved in with him, and he talks about this bringing him so much joy. He's quoted as saying, God took five children from me some years ago, and he has given me another five to bring up for him in my old age. In fact, Unlike a lot of our preachers, he was like more more like a Warfield or a Mueller in that he saw the importance of teaching and raising children. He wrote a lot and spent huge portions of his time ensuring that children were being taught and being well cared for. Horace was also an interesting guy, and he could kind of get in trouble with the church he was a part of. Not only did he leave and join the Free Church, but he was also a huge fan of hymns, as we mentioned. He would end up writing over 600 of them, and he introduced them into worship. He said it was important to be very careful what you sing, but he also believed that there should be singing done in your time of worship. 
uh, the church councils had issues with this. They, it was not a part of their tradition in Scotland, uh, but Horace kind of went ahead and did it anyway. Uh, today, he is actually one of the two most famous hymn writers of Scotland's history. The other area he got into trouble with was he promoted D.L. Moody's uh, evangelistic crusades. You know, he wrote things saying, I love what Moody's doing over there in America. Keep up the good work, guys. But there were other people inside this new Freacher Church of Scotland that were saying, like, we don't think that's a good way to do things. Stick to doctrine. Stick to, you know, we don't want that. We think there's a bit of hyper-emotionalism. They got into these big debates, and uh, they went back and forth on who was wrong and who was right. But it showed that Benar wasn't afraid to take hits and to take controversial stances. He, he was willing to say what he thought was true. In 1866, he would take over the church that Dr. Thomas Chalmers was been at as he moved on to do bigger and greater things. Benar would eventually die in 1889. Uh, one of the tough things about his life, even just writing this episode, was one of the last things he told everyone he knew. He said, he said, I ask you one thing alone. Do not write a biography about me because I don't really want to be remembered. I want people to remember Jesus Christ and to move on with their lives. There's nothing to remember about old Horace Benar. Uh, the problem was many years later when we go back to study him, there's no biography. There's nothing written there. We just have to piece it all together like you saw in this episode. So it is a little bit difficult to fully know what he was like, um, but we do have an interesting story that might give you some insight. There's this little vignette uh, that we see written of him by another man, someone that was traveling through and had this conversation with Andrew. And I think it's kind of a really interesting, beautiful quote that kind of shows a bit about his personality. What was he like? Not when he's uh, behind a pulpit preaching. Like, what was he like, uh, you know, in a in a diner or at a hotel room lobby? And this account uh, comes from someone not in. Horatius circles. It's not in that theology group. It's, this is a, a random passerby that happened uh, to be in the same place as him. He writes, One dark night in the year 1856 in the city of Jerusalem, I wandered into a lighted mission room on Mount Zion, where a small company of men and women of various nationalities and complexions were gathered. At the desk was a man of impressive countenance, of low and musical voice. The preacher, I learned later, was Dr. Horatius Bernard. Learned and eloquent, there was a wonderful charm in what he said that night because he had strong convictions on that subject of much speculation, the second coming of the Lord. He believed in his personal coming to reign on the earth and his faith seconded by his rich poetic imagination and fervor, all quickened by the fact that we were in Jerusalem. The city of passion, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension gave to his words a winning power which I cannot describe. He had no specific time for the advent. He did not argue in controversy, but gave himself up to the scene where, sooner or later, the king shall come again to walk in the streets of his abasement, in the effulgence of the sunlight that shall attend him to hear such a man in Jerusalem having a firm belief in the personal coming and reign of Christ so able to communicate to others freely his confident hopes. It was a memorable event. Yeah, in 1856, uh, Benar went to, to went to Jerusalem. You know, his brother and Robert McShane had gone before. He wanted to visit it, so about a decade later he goes. I love this account because so often we hear stories 
from people who are fans or people who are the biographers. And a lot of times the history is brought to us by the people who want us to hear the good things he did. This guy just remembers one day walking by a room, hearing somebody just speaking passionately about Jesus Christ. And he walks in, it's, it's, it's this banar. And he's just sitting there just pouring his heart out. And just, he wants to tell everyone about the hope that's inside of him. He didn't know this guy was going to write this down. This wasn't done for books, fame, or anything else. He just was feeling a connection and excitement about being in Jerusalem, and he just wanted to share the faith that was in him. I, in some ways, this little kind of behind-the-curtain look of who he was when nobody was looking is almost the, the best look you can get at who he was. This is how we know who he really was, and I love it. You know, I just This is one of my favorite stories. I hope that you hearing that, you get that impression of like, no, when, when nobody was looking, this is who Horace was. He just loved Jesus so much. This sermon is titled, Apostolic Size, and it talks about how Paul gives us insight into his struggles as an apostle, what he was going through emotionally, and how he turns all of it into this hope in Christ. As a man who had his controversies, and he lost five children, yet he turned all his hope into Christ and was able to produce 600 hymns. He's the perfect guy to kind of hear this insight from. I wish you did reign, so that we also could reign with you, 1 Corinthians 4.8. This is one of the very few passages in which the apostle gives vent to his feelings as a suffering and injured man. Though no less than six verses here, 8 through 13, there runs the utterance of a solemn sorrow. We might almost call it melancholy at the contemplation of his present lot as an apostle of the Lord. His life had much bitterness, danger, weariness, contempt, persecution, hunger, thirst, nakedness, reviling, stoning, chains. These were its chief earthly ingredients. And had there not been something heavenly compensating for all these, he would have been above all men most miserable. He felt the sorrow. For conversion had not taken him away from human feelings. Yet he seldom refers to it, and when he does, it is more with triumph than with sadness. As when he says in Romans 8, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Here, his reference to his sorrows has more in it of sadness than elsewhere. Yet he has not repented of his course. He is not ashamed of his apostleship. He is willing to drink an even more bitter cup than he has yet tasted. The sadness that comes out is altogether natural and shows truly how the apostle was a man, a man of like passions with ourselves. We get a passing insight into the noble soul and learn how profoundly he felt the evils. They were like the waves of the storm beating upon him without ceasing, and how oftentimes his heart was on the verge of breaking even in the midst of joy, unspeakable and full of glory. He does not draw back. He does not refuse to pay the cost of apostleship. He accepts the present honor and the coming glory with all their conditions and penalties. For the joy set before him, he endures the shame, but he still feels the agony. And oh, with what a tone of serene yet shaded feeling do we hear him speak these words in 1 Corinthians 4. 
For I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, and angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Up to the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. We labor working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we entreat. We are, even now, like the world's garbage, like the filth of all things. With some, I fear, there is more than the apostles' sorrow. They, they do not repent about having taken up the cross, but they shrink sometimes from what it has brought upon them. They counted on a little suffering, but it has become too much. They gladly took up the cross, but yet they had not realized its weight and its sharpness. They were prepared for some bitterness, but not for all this gall and wormwood. They made ready for battle, but the fight has proved sorer and longer than they dreamed of. They were not unwilling to bear shame for his name, but the reproach has proved heavier than they can bear. They knew that they were to meet resistance from the world, but not all this hatred, this malignity, this misrepresentation. They did not refuse the idea of sacrifice and suffering, but what levels of Poverty, disappointment, and broken hearts have gone beyond their calculations. The wounds are deeper. The fiery darts are sharper, and the furnace is hotter. The road is rougher, the hill is higher, and the stream is deeper than they had anticipated. They do not wish they had not become Christians, but they hardly know what to do or which way to turn. They submit but they do not count it all joy. They have the sadness of the apostle without his exulting gladness. His was but half a sorrow because of the joy that he also had. Theirs is but half a joy because of the sorrow they feel. In such a case, they need to be reminded of the apostolic hope by which the primitive church was sustained. Otherwise, Satan should get an advantage over them or they may be weary and faint in their minds. There is another class of Christians, however, of whom Paul here most especially speaks. They are the easy-minded and self-satisfied who think of themselves full and rich. They are not Laodiceans, but they're close enough. They are not foolish virgins, but they are similar. They would not think of following the world, but they do not like the idea of confronting and condemning it. They would rather be saved from the ill will and scorn which separation from its vanities and pleasures is sure to produce. Yet all the while, enjoying Christianity at their firesides and congratulating themselves on the carefulness by which they have succeeded in avoiding reproach without relinquishing their profession. They would rather not expose themselves to too much shame for overzeal or overcommitment or overboldness in the cause of Christ. A little compromise with the world, they think, does no harm. A 
proper enjoyment of its harmless amusements, they are persuaded, is of great benefit to themselves and of wonderful use in working with worldly men and smoothing away their prejudices. They look with great disfavor upon the outspoken passion of fearless, single-eyed disciples, those to whom Christ is everything and the world nothing. No, they join with the scoffer in reviling these men as excited enthusiasts professing themselves the best of Christians all the while and announcing that the religion they admire is not burdensome and not outgoing, but modest and retiring. No, they grow most passionate, in fact, in denouncing zeal for Christ and never fail to add that these overzealous Christians do more harm than good. Of such it is that the apostle writes these words of solemn rebuke. Already you are full Already you are rich. You have begun to reign as kings without us. And it is in reference to their conduct that he adds these other words of sorrowful irony. I wish you did reign so that we could also reign with you. I wish that the day of reigning had come, that we might be delivered from these calamities. But alas from us, that day has not yet broken. We are not in the kingdom yet but only suffering the tribulation on the way to the kingdom. Let us now ascertain the exact teaching of these words. Number one, there is a reign for us. We are made kings and priests of God. In virtue of our oneness with him, who is our king and priest as well as God's king and priest, the church is a royal priesthood, a noble band of Melchizedek's, each one of which can say, even now, we have received the kingdom which cannot be moved. In unison with the multitudes above, we sing not only you have redeemed us by your blood, but we will reign on the earth. It does not yet appear what we will be, for the disguise of mortality is on us. But we know that the crown of life, oh, that crown of righteousness, is in store for us. And that if we suffer, we will also reign. Not safety merely, nor blessedness, nor glory, but a kingdom, a scepter, a throne. The world's reign is now, but the church's reign is coming. Satan is now earth's prince, but Christ will soon be king. Number two, that rain will end our tribulation. There is first the suffering and then the glory. The dawn of the glory is the dispensation of the clouds and the stilling of the storm. For that glory comes from the presence of the glorious one. And in his presence, there can be no morning and no darkness. It is his reign as well as our own. And into his kingdom, nothing that defiles or darkens will enter. Were that era still the time of his absence, we could not be assured of its unmingled brightness. But it is the day of his presence, and that is the assurance to us of its sorrowless splendor. There will be no night there, for the sun does not go down. There will be no more curse, for the blessed one is there. The winter is past, and the rain is over and gone. The clouds return no more. And not the kingdom only, but the king has come. And with him, all his saints. The last battle is over. 
the usurper dethroned and bound and mortality is swallowed by life. The days of mourning have ended. The tears are wiped away. The marriage of the lamb has come. But the bride and the bridegroom have met and the new Jerusalem has descended and Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter are upon its throne. We will no longer hear of a church militant and a church triumphant, no more of a divided Christ or a divided church, part weeping, part rejoicing, some above, some below, souls in heaven, bodies in the grave, Christ's redeemed members scattered everywhere. All this is over. Separation, distance, death, toil, weariness, sighing, all have fled away. The year of the redeemed will come. Their reproach is ended and their reigning is begun. Number three, we are going to look and long for that reign. When the apostle says, I wish to God that you did reign, that we might also reign with you. He meant to say, oh, that, that day will come, which you seem to think has arrived already. Then we should rejoice with you and triumph together. He saw nothing on this side of that reign but reproach and tribulation. Streaks of sunlight there might be, but not the day. Hours of rest might relieve the lifetime's weariness, but the rest that remains was awaiting the arrival of the king. In prosperous days, the church has forgotten these things, becoming contented with the imperfect and mortal, ceasing to sigh for the incorruptible and undefiled. She cannot be trusted with ease. This has always been to her a peril and a snare. In gracious wisdom, God has made her path rough and her cup bitter so that she may not take her ease or tarry by the way, but set her affection on the things above. In telling us of the kingdom, God meant us to think much of it, to desire it, and to count all on earth as but a shadow. Our eyes are to be upward, eastward, and watching for the day. Our heart's desire and prayer is to be for the hastening of the kingdom, for the church's sake as well for our own. We are to plead for its arrival. This is our hope, and there is none like it. These are our future plans, and what is there now that can come between them and us? It is not sentimentalism, nor fanaticism, nor fancy to desire this kingdom come. It is simple faith. That faith which is the substance of things hoped for. Love, too, constrains us to these longings. Yes, love. Love to the king compels us. For while the expectation of glory to ourselves is no base or feeble motive yet, above and beyond this, there is a personal attachment to the Lord himself. True-hearted loyalty which quickens within us passionate longing that he should be glorified.
At one point he says there is tribulation and then there is the dawn, the day when it all will be better, the day we will understand all of it so well. I think Warfield said in his sermon, someday everything we went through will become crystal clear. And not only will we be done suffering, but not only will we be in a kingdom of joy, and not only will we be in heaven, but we will be there with the king. Just think about what that's going to be like. There's no words I can say that can make that sound better than it is. If that should excite you, I know it excites me too. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Ed Beckel. He has taught for more than 30 years in churches in Oregon, Washington, and Nebraska. He is currently in Warden, Washington. He has been serving with Warden Community Church since May of 2010. We mentioned at the top of this episode that this is a free Banner of Truth book giveaway. For an opportunity to get this episode, there's two ways to get your name in there. The first will be by sharing the episode onto our social medias and tagging it but a better way to share it is to just share it from our post whether facebook instagram or twitter we will have the episode up you just click the share button and we will see your name appear make sure you have your settings set to public or at least on some level that we can see it people have shared our episodes before and if you're not if you're private we can't tell that you did it so it doesn't get you into the author the offering but if you share it and we can see your name, we'll put you into the list of names. The other way to get your name in there is to comment on that same episode feed. Wherever you see us posting, hey, this is the episode to share, you leave a little comment underneath and those will get your names into the randomizer. I'll collect all the names, put it in, and one person will be the winner of this book, The Bruce Read by Richard Sims. This is Troy Angel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where you'll hear from Christian female entrepreneurs, politicians, ministry leaders, authors, athletes, CEOs, and more. I'm Erica Anderson, mom of two, writer, and host and creator of Worth Your Time. I created this podcast because I wanted to hear from more women like me who were interested in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. How do we navigate the choppy waters of partisan politics? How do we engage with culture honorably as Christian professionals? I know you don't have a lot of time, and that's why I make every second worth it on this show. You'll hear from women that aren't on every other Christian podcast, and we get really real, because I don't know how to function any other way. Episodes drop every other Tuesday. Hope to see you there.